0: Fit me Waiting for change to come knowing the battles won care, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful that it never changes despite what happens in our world. Despite everything that is going on around us, Lord, we, we know that you are God, that you are sovereign, and that you love us. Father, would you help us over the next few minutes to just quiet our hearts, to be able to set aside everything that would distract us, and to focus on the truth of your word. May your Holy Spirit be at work in us so that we would know what you are saying. May we hear your voice today, above all else, above all the noise of this world, above all the turmoil in our hearts and minds. We would hear you. May you be glorified as we open the word together today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. There are certainly a lot of things going on and happening in our world today that we can be anxious about. I had one of my least favorite days of the month last week when I came home at lunchtime and there was a little yellow slip of paper stuck in my door. It's one of my least favorite days because I know that little yellow slip of paper means the oil truck has come (laughs) and filled my heating oil tank. But I thought, you know, it's been pretty warm the last two or three weeks, so it probably is not too bad. And I was right, I'd only burned 110 gallons, except that this time 110 gallons of heating oil cost me $650. That kind of took my breath away a little bit. Just like it did when I rode into town the other day and gas was 450 instead of 220 like it was a year ago. Food prices and all goods and services, as you know, because you're living life in this world, are all more expensive. If you turn on the TV and listen to anyone that's talking about our economy, one of the prevailing questions is, is our money even going to be worth anything? We used to think we need to make sure that we're careful and have a little emergency fund and save as much as we can and be as as careful as we can, but now we're asking, is it even going to be worth anything when we need it? One of the most powerful countries in the world is invading a neighboring country. We've seen that happen a couple of times in our history with devastating results. We've seen the absolute incompetence of our federal government. We've seen the pervasiveness of gender confusion in our society that's not even, that's not even allowed. It's being encouraged and it's being promoted. And all of that is overwhelming I almost hate to bring it all up this morning because I don't want to overwhelm you even more than you already are. But we ask ourselves, what can we do when we see all these things happening? And, and all of it conspires together to rob us of whatever shred of peace that we can conjure up in our lives. How do we deal with all of this? What do we do? How do we handle it? Well, As somewhat of a student of human nature for the last 30 years, I've realized that typically, as human beings, we handle anxiety one of two ways. You can think about which way you do it and which category you fall into, but there's a bunch of us out there that when we face difficulty and stress and anxiety and all these circumstances that are overwhelming, there's a group of us that say, I can handle it because I'm tough and I'm stubborn. Or I can figure it out. I can fix it. Except that most of these problems are beyond our control. And then there's another category of us out there as human beings who say, who kind of subscribe to the philosophy of don't worry, be happy. You remember that song? Now, some of you weren't even born when that song came out. But others of us were mature, uh, <laughs> several years into our lives when that song came out, Don't Worry, Be Happy. We love that philosophy, some of us, don't we? Hey, just let's just keep going. Let's just ignore it. Let's pretend it's not happening. The power of positive thinking. The problem with that philosophy is that that doesn't make any of the problems go away. So what should we do? Well, I'm going to have to talk with Tim Yates after the service. He kind of built me up there. I don't know if I can live up to that standard about uh, Theology 303. Please, set your expectations very low, and then you won't be disappointed. Uh, But it is true. There are so many passages of Scripture that we can't understand, and, and I'll just let the cat out of the bag here. If you come to 303, some of the things we'll be talking about, I will preface by saying we can't possibly completely understand all of this. We'll do our best to understand as much as we can. But you know how when you open your Bible sometimes and you look at a passage and you say, What in the world does that mean? I can't understand this. You know how that happens sometimes? Well, today is not one of those days. Because Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, are absolutely perfectly straightforward. And they are very easy to understand. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at them, and as we process what we should do in these overwhelming times. We've been talking about what citizens of heaven must do. Now, we are residents of this earth, certainly, and we have all the normal pressures of life, of work, of money, of family, but we also, as citizens of heaven, we also have A little bit extra pressure, if I could say it that way. Because God is calling us to live up to his standard. God is telling us, I don't just want you to survive in this world. I want you to live in this way that I am challenging you to live. And that's what Paul has been doing. If you've been with us over the past 10 or 12 weeks, we've been talking about this higher standard that God is calling us to. This morning, Paul is going to challenge us in the midst of difficulty to rest in God's peace. That's what he's going to challenge us with this morning. How do we do that? Well, Paul's going to tell us there are three things that we must do, and that's that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about three things That Paul tells us we must do if we want to be able to rest in God's peace in overwhelming times. Now, I want you to remember before we start reading this, that when Paul writes this, he is not sitting in some ivory tower somewhere, tossing down morsels of wisdom to us peons, living life. Paul is sitting in prison. Remember that. He is chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Every 8 or 10 hours, a new guy comes in and clamps the shackles on his wrist. And Paul is sitting there, and he's lived a difficult life. Okay, I don't know about you, but by the way, the category that I fall into of the two categories I was talking about is the I can handle it and I can fix it category. That's kind of what I like to do. You want to tell me a problem, I'll tell you how to fix it. Whether you want to know or not. That's just the way, that's how my mind works. And Paul, Paul is living this life, this difficult life. He's been been stoned, he's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been imprisoned. Now he's in fear of his life. Facing possible execution. Paul is not giving us platitudes here. He's giving us truth. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. We'll we'll just read one verse at a time. And then pull out what we need to. Verse 4 of Philippians 4 says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. So three things that we must do. Here's the first one. Paul says we must rejoice. Now. Now. If you've been here a few times over the last couple of three months and we've been in Philippians, you already know that to rejoice means to give thanks for grace. We've, we've looked at that. We've drawn that out. Now Paul says we need to do it always. At all times, literally he means. And then he repeats it. This matters. Paul says we need to be rejoicing always. Don't forget, rejoice. Now this is already the 11th or 12th time Paul has used the word joy or rejoice in this little short book. And the verb tense that Paul uses when he tells it to us means a continual, habitual, developing the practice of rejoicing. It's easy to look in our lives, it's easy to see what's going on, it's easy to bump into walls and trip over things and have a difficult time, and once in a while we rejoice and we thank God for what he's done for us and say, hey, I rejoice, once in a while. Paul says, always, we need to develop the habit of rejoicing. Now again, this is not a don't worry, be happy kind of thing. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not turn that frown upside down. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's giving thanks for the grace of God in our lives, which means we are confident that God is in control of everything that is happening and it is for our good. Now you all would have been okay with that if I had stopped after he's in control of what's happening, right? But then I said it's for our good That makes it very, very difficult. Paul says in all of these things, no matter what's going on, no matter how overwhelming it is, no matter how anxious you are, no matter how stressful everything is, we need to be rejoicing. Whether it's stressing over grocery prices and gas prices or the threat of nuclear war. Paul says... We maintain our confidence that God is in control. That's why I think what we're doing right now is so important. That we gather and we worship and then we open God's word and we study together and learn together who God is. That's why we have classes like Theology 101 and 202 and 303 and so on. That's why we have small groups. That's why we encourage you to read your Bible every day to learn who God is so that you might maintain the confidence that he is in control. Notice what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Why does that matter? It matters because he's the only consistent, dependable source of joy that we can have. There is nothing else that we can rely on that never changes. Our emotional and spiritual stability is directly related to how and what we think about God. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 3.19. Paul is praying there for the Ephesian church and he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. We need to know God. We need to know his love. And the more that we know him, truly know him, the easier it will be to have confidence in him. And in his control. Rejoicing in the Lord presupposes that we are treasuring Christ, we treasure him above all else. You see, the reason why we get anxious when all these things happen like are happening in our world today is because it's happening to things that we treasure. I'm not going to lie to you. I have an emergency fund at the credit union in my name, and I'm thankful to have it. So that if something happens in my household, or to my family, or to my vehicle, I can take care of it. And when something starts to affect that emergency fund, it makes me anxious. Why? Because I treasure it. I want it to be there. Because it gives me security. But rejoicing in the Lord means I I treasure Him above all else. Above all other forms of security. That's what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean that we're never going to experience grief or sorrow or loss. It's not unfeelingness. It's not apathy. It's not ignorance. I'm not ignorant of what's happening around me but it's the understanding of the grace and power and sovereignty of God which is greater than all of these things that are happening. We must rejoice. Let's read verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, at first, this seems like it's a little bit out of place. When we've read the first verse and when we read the next one in just a couple of minutes, it seems a little bit out of place because, first of all, Paul says we must rejoice. If we're going to have freedom from our anxiety, if we're going to be able to, to process everything that's going on and rest in God's peace, we need to rejoice. Okay, we get it. That makes sense. But now, Paul says, number two, we must be gracious. We must be gracious. Now, this is a difficult word to pin down. It's very rich with meaning. It really can mean a number of different things depending on the context. We could say Paul means generosity. We could say goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, uh, patience, mercy. The word that I want to use for you this morning is graciousness. Graciousness is humility in the face of injustice and mistreatment. If I could define it for you a little further, I would say that graciousness, the, the word that is translated reasonableness in the ESV, is a generous response to someone else's aggression. Now I've gone to this well two or three times and I do it at risk of you thinking I really have a problem in this area, but it's probably true I do have a problem in this area. Let me give you an example. When you're about to pull out from a stop sign and someone cuts you off, we won't talk about how I respond to that, but how do you respond to that? I don't know how many times in the last 25 28 years my wife has said, has said please don't honk your horn like that when someone does that that's the opposite of graciousness graciousness is generosity and humility in response to someone else's aggression You may be familiar with this verse. You may have heard someone read this verse before. But Matthew 5.45. Christ says that the Father sends the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. And we should too. In other words, we don't just treat people well who treat us well. We should treat everyone well. Everyone graciously. Now what does that have to do with anxiety? Well... I believe that graciousness is at heart taking the focus off of ourselves. You see, to dive into the behavior that I display when someone cuts me off when I'm driving, I'm angry because of how it affects me. If I'm really being impatient, I might be angry because he's adding three seconds to my trip, (laughs) wherever it is that I'm going. Or I could be angry because I say, hey buddy, we almost got in an accident. You almost cost me a thousand bucks because you hit my car. Graciousness is taking the focus off of ourselves and that's not natural. The world's true obsession is self-focus. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Stolen Focus, actually. And it's about, uh, this guy is writing about what is happening to us as a society because of technology and some of the other things that are affecting our attention span, affecting our ability to focus on tasks and concentrate and so on and so forth. But he was talking about being in Paris a few years ago. And he was, in the, he was there for a business meeting. And so he decided, while I'm here, I've got to go to the Louvre, the museum. And I've got to see all the famous paintings there. And of course, the most famous painting in the entire world is the Mona Lisa. And it's at the Louvre. So he said, I'm going to go. I want to see the Mona Lisa. I want to see some of the Rembrandts and all this stuff. So he went into the hall that the Mona Lisa is displayed and immediately he said, wow, well, I guess I'm going to have to wait a minute because there was this, this huge scrum of people around in front of the Mona Lisa. So he decided to step back and wait till people had looked and done what they wanted to do and then he would go in and, and see the painting. But as he stood there and watched, he realized that nobody was really looking at the painting. And what the confusion was in front of the display was that people were were fighting their way in to where the Mona Lisa was and then they were turning around and taking their phones out and taking selfies with the Mona Lisa in the background. And so he decided to just stand there and watch for a minute and he waited for over an hour and he said not one person looked at the Mona Lisa for more than two or three seconds. Everybody was just fighting their way in, and then gone. The more we focus on ourselves, the more anxious we become. Because we see everything that's happening, and we run it through the grid of how does this affect me? And our anxiety increases. Paul says, if we're going to be able to rest in God's peace, not only must we rejoice, but we must be gracious. We must learn to take the focus off of ourselves. And Paul continues that thought in this little verse by saying, the Lord is at hand. Now, why would he say that? You know, why is Paul talking about the Lord being at hand? And we look at that instantly and we think, oh, that means that the Lord is coming back soon. Yeah, yeah, we know that. But what does that have to do with any of this? Well, actually, what Paul is referring to here is the fact that the Lord is near. Not just that the Lord is coming back, although he is, but he is near in that we are not alone He is here now. How can I be gracious? How can I take the focus off myself? Well, in part, I can do that because I know that I'm not alone, that I am known, that even though I'm anonymous to the people that are cutting me off in the street or running into me in the grocery store or taking the last thing off the shelf before I can get it, despite all those things happening around me, the Lord is near to me and I am known and I am not alone. And that helps enable me To be gracious. We must rejoice. We must be gracious. Let's look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now this is the really famous verse. This is the really well-known verse when we talk about being anxious. We must rejoice. We must be gracious. And here's the third thing that Paul says that we must do to rest in God's peace. We must pray. We must pray. Do not be anxious literally means to be drawn in opposite directions. It implies our attention being divided. The figurative language here is that we go to pieces. Now, I don't know why, whenever I think about this word and I think about this definition, I always think about a young mother. You know, these moms that have three kids under the age of five or something to that effect. And one kid is climbing on the cabinets in the kitchen, and the other kid is about to run out into the street, and the other one's doing something with the water in the bathroom, and she's trying to figure out which direction to go. That's what I picture when I read this verse and this word. That's what Paul is talking about. Attention divided, being pulled in opposite directions, going to pieces. To be anxious is to be overwhelmed. Now Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, literally not even one thing. Don't even let one thing overwhelm you. Rather than be overwhelmed, or let the circumstances of life overwhelm and master us, we must react with prayer. And why does Paul say that? Well, I believe he says that because prayer... Turns our hearts away from ourselves and toward God. Reference our earlier conversation about our problem with self-focus. Turn our hearts away from ourselves and toward God. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, what I like is how he plays with these words. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. The word everything is very interesting here as well. Everything literally means the whole. But while we look at the whole, we acknowledge all of the individual parts. So it's the whole. We see the whole thing. We see everything that's going on. But we acknowledge all of the individual parts. And I was trying to think of a way that I could explain that to you. And so I think I've done that. Somebody asked me if I had brownies up here this morning. I said, thank you. Now I'm starving. I don't have brownies under here. What I have is a, I don't know how many of you can see this, but this is a Batmobile from the new Batman movie. It's pretty cool. Uh, You turn the wheels and the pistons go up and down and you hit the shifter and a light opens up or or turns on. It's very, very cool. The interesting thing about this Batmobile, though, is it's made up of 1,360 pieces Somebody with a lot more patience than me put it together over several hours. It's a Batmobile. That's what it is. But it has all of these individual little parts that go together to make it what it is. And that's kind of like our lives, isn't it? I mean, you have your life. This is my life. But when we use that word, what we're talking about is really what? All of the little individual things that make up our lives. All of our relationships and all of our responsibilities. All of the things that happen every day. All of the things that we need to do. All of the pressures that weigh down upon us. And Paul says, when we pray, we need to pray about everything. We need to pray about our lives. We bring our lives to God and say, God, look, I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. But more than that, God wants us to bring every little thing to him in prayer. He wants to know those specifics. What does he say there in the verse? Let your requests be made known to God. God cares about all of those little things that make up our lives. All of those factors, all of those elements bring every single one of those to God. You notice he uses three words here. He says prayer and supplication and requests. And as much as I love theology, I want you to look at this verse and see not a theology of prayer, but I want you to see the priority of prayer. Bring everything, everything to God. Always, In every circumstance. Because he cares about every aspect of our lives. And he says we should do it with thanksgiving. The word thanksgiving there, the Greek word is eucharista. And that wouldn't mean anything to you necessarily. Other than I want you to understand that the middle six letters of that word are C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis, that's the Greek word. For grace that we've looked at so many times, that's in the middle of rejoicing and joy. It's here in thanksgiving as well. Paul continues to say we need to pray, bring everything, every little thing, every aspect of our lives to God, but we do it with thankfulness for His grace. Why does that matter? Well, aside from the obvious of being thankful to God for everything that we have, when we pray thankfully, It keeps our prayers from being complaints. Have you ever been at that point in your life where it seems like every prayer is just a complaint? God, why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? This shouldn't happen to me. This shouldn't be happening in my family. I shouldn't have to deal with this. When we come before God and we pour out our hearts to him, and we bring every single little thing, every aspect of our lives to him, it keeps our prayers from turning into a list of self-centered demands. Let your requests be made known to God. In that phrase, I want you to see our confidence in God. When I make my requests known, thankfully, to God, what I'm saying is, God, I know that you hear me. I know that you care about me and what's happening in my life. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then we can rest in God's peace. This is where we must be. But we can't just have his peace without the first three things. I've talked to so many people over the course of my life that are wrestling with things, that that are overwhelmed, that are facing just unbelievable amounts of anxiety because of all the things that are falling apart in their lives. And they ask, why doesn't God just give me peace? Well, when we submit ourselves to him, By rejoicing, by being gracious, by coming to him humbly in prayer, he does give peace. Literally, quietness, rest. Remember when we said that anxious means to be drawn in different directions and to be pulled to pieces? Well, the word peace actually means to be joined together. It carries with it the idea of wholeness. You ever look at somebody living their life and say, wow, they've really got it all together. That's what this word means. Peace, wholeness, rest. It's the opposite of being pulled in every different direction. God's peace is the opposite of anxiety. And I know that many of you are probably sitting there thinking, yeah, but how is that even possible? You should see my life. You don't even know. It may look like I've got it all together, but I really don't. On the inside, I'm flying into a million pieces. Well, I want you to notice that when Paul talks about the peace that God gives, when we humbly submit ourselves to him, he says it is a peace that is beyond our understanding. I think one of the reasons why we get frustrated when we're in these kinds of situations and we so desperately long for peace and you're sitting there thinking, I don't want my life to be flying into a million pieces. I want to be whole. I want to have it together. I want to rest. But I just don't see how that's possible. Paul says, you won't. God's peace is beyond our understanding. It's rooted in our trust in God. The question is not, can we figure this out? Can we reason our way out of all this conflict or pain or turmoil in our lives? The question is rather, do we trust that God can resolve it? When we do, when we do trust that he can resolve it, then his peace will guard our hearts and minds. He will protect us. He will sustain us. So the question becomes for us, as Christ followers, as citizens of heaven, can you rest in God's peace today? Can you rest in his peace? Have you experienced the incomprehensible calmness in difficulty that only God can give. If we're going to do that, we have to cultivate rejoicing in our lives. We have to cultivate graciousness in our lives. We have to cultivate prayer in our lives. theologian, Karl Barth, said this, The word joy in Philippians is a defiant nevertheless that Paul sets like a full stop against their anxiety. And I get it. I'm living in this world too. And I understand everything that's going on. But Paul says, nevertheless, despite everything that's happening, we can have rest. What should I do? What should you do? Can I challenge you this morning, friends, that you need to develop what I want to call a high view of God? You need to develop a solid belief in His absolute sovereignty. so that you can rejoice, so that you can be gracious when you're mistreated, so you can pray in every circumstance, so that you can rest in God's peace. You won't be able to do that unless your life is based on this absolute trust in his sovereignty. And knowing, and this is what we're going to sing about, knowing that the battle belongs to him. That's where we find peace. Let's stand together and sing this song together. So we sang it. <laughs> now we've got to believe it. Now we've got to do it. The mountains, the valleys, the shadows. Every fear I lay at your feet. That's what we wrestle with every day, right? So tell me, what areas of your life do you need to lay at his feet? What is causing you so much anxiety you wake up at night in a sweat? Or you sit at your desk at work and you can't concentrate because all you can think about is what's happening. What are those areas? Those are the things that we need to lay at his feet. You must believe that Jesus Christ, who in the most loving act imaginable, secured your eternity, still loves you enough that you can handle what's going on right now. Do you? Do you believe that? And we can have peace no matter what's happening around us. Father, we submit ourselves to you and we acknowledge that this is very, very difficult for us because we want to take control. We, we want to fix it. Or we'd rather just go through life and pretend that it's not happening because it's too much for us. We understand today as a result of the truth of your word that you have something far better in store for us. You have peace, rest, Father, would you help every person that is here today that is listening to these truths, would you help them to understand and to believe and to cling to, like a rock in the middle of a storm, your absolute sovereignty over all things. Father, I believe this this battle that's going on in our world today on so many fronts, This battle is yours. This is a battle between good and evil. And you are good and just and right. And you will win. Help us to believe that and to rest in your promises. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.